Nathan here. As you will shortly hear, uh, this is not a usual 200 a day episode where we cover an episode of the Rockford Files. Rather, this is one of our Plus Expenses episodes. Uh, Plus Expenses is the show we've been putting out exclusively for our Patreon backers over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. And it's where Epi and I kind of chat about things going on in our lives and other media that we're watching and uh, spend a little more time um, catching up on game design stuff and things out in the world that are of note to us. And it's fun and we enjoy doing it. And it's a little more low key and less heavily uh, edited than our normal discussions. So uh, we just wanted to throw out an example episode uh, onto the main feed so you can check it out. And if there's stuff that we talk about or you like the tone of our conversation, um, we invite you to come join us on Patreon. All of our patrons get a RSS link, so you can just add this right into your podcast app of, of choice. And all of our patrons get it uh, from the $1 an episode level on up. This conversation touches on subjects from uh, capitalism to uh, radicalization on YouTube to Godzilla to professional wrestling in Japan to David Chase to the cultural influence of television to psychogeography to 90s role-playing games and so much more. So please enjoy this episode of Plus Expenses. Nothing is ever, no one's ever satisfied. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I should know better and just save things all the time. <laughs> but I don't, so that's where we're at. All right, I got notes. I want to bring up the IMD. IMD. Mm-hmm. The source of all truth. Yes, which we're supposed to buy, boycott next week. Mm-hmm. Eat it, Amazon Prime Day. Yeah, eat it. I'll deny you of your fractional advertising revenue on imdb yeah the problem with the problem with let me let me a white guy with a podcast tell you the problem with amazon (laughs) yes please do (laughs) because that that has not yet uh been in the world um the thing is there's there's so much stuff that like if it's a commodity it's not Mm -hmm. like there's other options that are any less ethically fraught yeah like like, for example, if you want to buy a Yeti microphone, it's not like there's some, like, local audio yeah. <laughs> provisioner that I can go to and spend my money locally in order to get this device. That would be awesome, though. <laughs> like, a town that was made of podcasters that just had, like, artisanal, uh, locally sourced podcast equipment. I mean, back when I did audio, like actual audio engineering stuff for theater for a short period of time, you know, I would buy stuff from, you know, from audio manufacturers. And there's there's whole there's a whole industry of, you know, basically of distributors for technical mm-hmm. equipment. Right. So it's like there was this one that I liked that uh, I would order microphones from and stuff. And it's like, I mean, I guess technically they're I, they're they're a family owned business or whatever. Um, but they're one of the largest audio and (laughs) and, like audio visual and effects distributors in the world and buying microphones from them is like still, you know, it's not like they're, it's not like they're sourcing their products from ethically produced, uh, uh, local, you know, made in the USA factories or something like it's the same equipment. 
it is mm-hmm. still, you know, made in China somewhere and shipped yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then made available to, to customers. Um, so yeah, at a certain point, like it's different with stuff that you can, that you have options for, but that's, that's the problem with capitalism. <laughs> Mon- monopolies grow. Uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. He says in the, the throne that the castle that capitalism sold them. Right. Well, as they say, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, uh, and there's no divesting from the system if you want to continue interacting with it. So yeah, that's something you everyone has to come to terms with on their own in their own special way. What if we don't like coming to terms with things? Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> what if that way? If, <laughs> that, that way lies uh, increasingly radicalized YouTube videos. I think. <laughs> Uh, we were talking today about, I was talking to Elliot, the middle of the Baker kids, because mm-hmm. uh, of uh, that game Stigmata mm-hmm. that had like a 14-hour YouTube hate review of it. Right. And so and this he, is the uh, avowedly anti-fascist yes. role-playing yeah. game. Uh, and it came up because I, I did the thing where I was like, uh, now I want to buy that game, but also... I want a physical copy because I'm uh, a hypocrite who doesn't print physical copies, but also like knows that he won't read it if it's not a physical copy, right. you know. Uh, but also, like just looking at my finances for this month, I'm not going to spend forty dollars on a game mm-hmm. uh, on a whim. I mean, I could, but uh, uh, I don't really want to. It would not be the responsible choice. Yeah, yeah, and I like. We've, the internet, we've been doing a lot of talking about responsibly pricing games mm-hmm. so that we can pay people what they're worth and whatnot. And that's a whole complex discussion and blah, blah, blah. And the thing that uh, one of the reasons why this came, oh man, I'm on a tangent. We were talking about, okay, so the night before or two nights ago, we went to our library, local mm-hmm. library. They had uh, a series of Stranger Things inspired programs, ostensibly for teens which I found out after attending one. <laughs> but um, the first one was Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there'll be another one about role-playing, how to role-play uh, or how to play role-playing games put on by the local game store here, which is pretty good um, as far as understanding and knowing that there are indie game designers in the area and whatnot. But anyways, we went for the Dungeons and Dragons one. And one of the persons putting on the presentation uh, held up a third-party supplement to Warhammer fantasy role-playing game from, I'm going to guess, the 80s or early 90s. Nice. He was just showing this as a thing that he loved, that he enjoyed. And he opened it up, and you could see this, like, I'm going to say six- or seven-point font, two-column. You know, like, this is yeah walls of text. And on one hand, that's bad. But on the other hand, <laughs> he also probably paid twelve dollars for this thing, right? Like that—that's right. my. I'm like just seeing that wall of text. I wanted that object because that is the objects that I remember, right? Like there's a mm-hmm. nostalgic hook there. But also, man, I I don't want to pay a lot of money. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like there's a lot of games I'd like to own, and uh, I can't afford all of them. But again, capitalism, I right. guess. 
I had no real. I'm not complaining about that game. Uh, what I wanted to say was just that uh, the reason why there's a 14 hour uh, hate review of this game is because the people doing that hate review are producing so much content. They have to do it right. Like that's their model. That's mm-hmm. how they survive. They spout hate into the internet. Right. It's all about engagement. Yes. And they have to do it for like, that is just their nine to five, which doesn't excuse them for any of it. I don't mean to do that, but I'm just saying that whatever model we have going that encourages people to shout about things for 14 hours straight is maybe a bad model. (laughs) Maybe a model worth investigating, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole, uh, anyone doing kind of analysis uh, of what has happened to YouTube. Yeah. That's the dynamic, is that YouTube rewards proliferation of content. Mm-hmm. It is easier to make content about stuff you don't like than it is about stuff you like. And when you are then trying to monetize your content yeah. and what keeps the train rolling is, you know... And yeah, spouting and, off spout, spouting off hate. Uh, that is how things get increasingly worse and worse. And there's there's this thing where if you not not even getting into the real fundamental problem of hate speech on YouTube, but um, just getting into this thing about doing angry reviews or reviewing things you don't like, hmm. uh, they're just by the numbers going to do better than reviewing things you like because. Hmm. People that hate them are going to watch and people that like them are going to hate watch. (laughs) And the other way around where I'm like, hmm, I really like Polar Seltzer. Let Mm -hmm. me uh, review Polar Seltzer for you. Uh, The only people that are going to watch that are the six Polar Seltzer fans that also (laughs) happen to know. (laughs) Like nobody who hates Polar Seltzer is going to watch a, a loving, a fourteen-hour loving review <laughs> of their cranberry lime flavor, which mm. <laughs> perhaps to bring it closer to home, uh, nobody who hates the Rockford Files is going to listen to us talk about the Rockford Files yes. for an hour and a half. <laughs> and I that's mean, our that's our problem. We have positioned what we're doing here in the wrong <laughs> direction. Even people who kind of like the Rockford Files, <laughs> aren't going <laughs> to listen to us do it for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I mean, we appreciate those of you who do. And yes. We are speaking to you directly right now. Yes. <laughs> You're the you. best. <laughs> <laughs> Better than all the rest. Um, it is, uh, it's the, it's, it's the problem with really liking, really liking things. You end up talking about them more than their actual footprint. Did you yeah. ever, I haven't, actually listen to it, but I know it exists. There's a podcast that uh, each episode was like one minute of runtime of, I think, of Star Wars. Oh, wow. Are you familiar with this? <laughs> no. Um, oh. oh, yeah. Star Wars Minute. Star Wars. One minute at a time. Which I feel like has, wow. has been around for a while. I mean, Star Wars is an old thing. <laughs> says, says the co-host of a Rockford Files podcast. All right. Uh, so it it just ended. Apparently, the last episode was May twenty third, twenty nineteen. Oh, okay. According to StarWarsMinute dot com, I'm trying to see when it started. Uh, ah, minute one: A period of civil war. So the first episode was in twenty thirteen. 
So they got six years out of a minute-by-minute podcast. Also, these first this first episode is 11 minutes long, talking about a minute of Star Wars. Yeah. So the, that sounds about right. The the crawl, right? Like the, the word crawl at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, oh, this is all of them. Goes through all the... Yeah. Does it start at the beginning... It says a period of civil war, so I think it that's starts. The, it starts the, at Star Wars. Yeah, and it the looks new like hope, it, if you will. Yeah, and it looks like it goes through chronologically. Like it looks like it goes through the release order. Ah, okay. I don't know. Anyway, so just clicking around, some of these are half hour long, some of them longer hmm. than that. Ooh, they do the holiday special. This is very interesting for our listeners. Um, this is this is just a. Uh, I, I, I cannot attest to the quality of this podcast as, as I said, I've not listened to it. However, the idea of spending 10 to 20 times as much time on each unit of runtime sounds about right. Oh, speaking of attesting to the quality of podcasts, mm. uh, last time we spoke, we're going to have some continuity here. This is exciting, Whoa. I think, for, for you, dear listeners. <laughs> uh, you recommended the pairing podcast mm. to me. Uh, particularly their their uh, Godzilla episodes. Yes, and I am one and a half in to those. I've heard, I've listened to one, and I'm I'm like partway through the second one. It's a lot of fun. I am going to say this from the the get go that I am going to listen to more of this podcast. And if if folks want to check it out, um, I, they can Google it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was going to say something. Oh, there was an interesting thing that came up uh, that had me thinking because. Uh, I'm going to do that thing where I disagree with, with something said in a different podcast <laughs> and, uh, where they cannot defend themselves. Yes. But I'm not, I'm not like, I don't want to do this aggressively cause I'm not actually intending to do this aggressively. I'm just, it, it is a, I'm using it as a launching point to make a different statement, but, um, they were talking about, oh my God, Angiris, I think is the name. I'm, I'm just going to go with that. Sure. This I is a, know. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> If you recall your Godzillas, if you've seen them, uh, sometimes Godzilla's got his little buddy who is uh, like an Ankylosaurus, right? Like a little four-legged. Mm-hmm. He's got a, lot, a bunch of spikes on him. Uh, that's Ungiris. Ungiris is the first monster that Godzilla fought uh, in the second Godzilla film called Godzilla Raids Again. Uh, it is Ungiris and Godzilla fighting. They're not friends. And I think Godzilla defeats Ungiris. Well, no spoilers. It doesn't matter. Anyways, it's a fun film. Enjoy watching it. Uh, but they become buddies, blah, blah, blah. And then they, this podcast, they're talking about this uh, and they're trying to sort of put Ungiris's position in the fiction into context for the viewers, right? Like, mm-hmm. so w- what does this character mean in the greater Godzilla verse or whatever? Like what, what is the, the deal with this character? And they described they described him as the meat shield because he doesn't win fights, but he goes in and takes a lot of beating, and then uh, somebody else comes in and uh, wins the day for him or what have you. And uh, meat shield is terminology from uh, video games that uh, sort of are of this genre that has come out of the tabletop game Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like so, mm-hmm. you have Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons inspires some video games, uh, and those video games, most notably the the uh, the MMOs, the multi M- multiplayer. Why is it? I don't even know what it means. Mul- multiplayer right. multiversal online. Yeah, something like that. Wow, 
<laughs> it's been so long. Yeah. World well, of Warcraft. We're talking about World of Warcraft. <laughs> World of Warcraft. Uh, that sort of stuff. So um, in those games, then, uh, you have characters that have different powers, but um, because it's a game on top of this fiction, or this fiction on top of a game, however you want to look at it, uh, they serve certain roles that are tactically important, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of these roles is a person that has can take a lot of damage mm-hmm. and does so uh, so that the rest of the crew doesn't have to take that damage. The tank, if you will. The tank, yes. The tank, the meat shield, uh, what have you. And so that exists. I'm not going to get too into game stuff here. I apologize if, if this isn't your thing. But um, so that exists within an economy in that game, right? Like, so over the course of a fight, there's a limited n- amount of damage that can be delivered and that's measurable. And right. then we have a character who can soak that up. Right. There is a, there's a tactical value to directing the finite damage in to a certain, uh, yes. to, to one of the party members so that the other ones can survive long enough to do the things that they do, which are do damage, uh, move yes. people around the battlefield or whatever. Yeah. So, all right, so this is what uh, they say in that podcast about Ungaris uh, and presented to an audience that probably understands it. Like, I'm uh, over-explaining it. But the reason why I'm over-explaining <laughs> it is because there's over 30 Godzilla films, most of which predate this phenomenon. Sure. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So uh, what I want to say without getting, like, saying that that was a bad take, because I don't want to say that. I think that is its own take. But my take on that, and I think you you know where I'm going with this, <laughs> is that Angiris's job is not to soak up a finite amount of damage that's being put out over the course of a combat. Angiris's job is to make the other monsters that Godzilla will eventually <laughs> defeat look badass, right? Right. So he Angiris is the uh, is the jobber of the yes, Godzilla exactly. universe. Is where you're going with this? <laughs> yes. So this is it, right? Like this is this is a. Um, I think this is an interesting uh, split in an understanding of what's happening in these stories. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. now, there may be some understanding of pro wrestling going on in the later Godzilla films, or maybe even the earlier ones. I know mm-hmm. that the way Godzilla walks is inspired by sumo wrestling, mm-hmm. uh, but. Like I don't know the crossover there. Like I don't, I, I don't have that. Um, uh... There's, I mean, there, there's an interesting historical thing about that. But I'll let you finish. Um, I'm gonna let you finish, and then oh, we you. can talk about wrestling. Well, I might actually, I might actually be finished. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, there are other ways to look at things, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, uh, there's I find the, that... kind of the 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 default framing is yeah is different. If you're coming from a different context. And so hearing this podcast, I had like two ways to go, right? I could be, because I obviously frame it differently than they do. I could be like, here I am pushing up my glasses. Mm-hmm. He's actually literally doing this. Uh, yes. listeners, I can see it. <laughs> actually, what's happening there. Or I can say, hey, this other framework has an interesting take on it as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and, uh, I don't know why I'm turning this into a moral lesson for our readers. So instead, I'm going to trail off there and let you tell us about pro wrestling sure. and kaiju. So the the 
interesting historical parallel is that both Godzilla uh, and professional wrestling in Japan, as distinct from sumo wrestling, which is has a different, yeah. you know, is is more of an indigenous tradition, but um, professional wrestling, uh, where it's fake, uh, if you will, or if it were is predetermined, um, uh, they they are simultaneous cultural responses to Japan's imperial power being defeated by the oh, West. Um, okay. So obviously Godzilla, as we talked about on our previous uh, plus expenses. Um, so if you are, if this is the first one yes. you're listening to, perhaps you'll need to go, go back and check that one out. Um, but as, as we talked about there, so, and as is kind of a, I think fairly generally taken as red, you know, the Godzilla is, is a response to, uh, uh, the bombing of, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a response to the horror of the, the atomic age, and yeah. the literal danger that it presents to Japan, literally. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. as a physical space. Professional wrestling in the post-war era um, came to Japan with other American cultural, like, presence. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, Japan got army bases, Coca-Cola, Disney, and uh, and and Carl Gotch. <laughs> One of the uh, one of the big uh, like fifties like classic wrestlers. Oh, okay. <laughs> there was there was transmission of of this into Japan, and it kind of you know got got mingled in with uh, sports culture in Japan, which is kind of its own has its own thing going on. Yeah. And then there, so there's this guy named uh, Ricky Dozen, who's considered the, the 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 father of Japanese professional wrestling. He's the one who like started the first um, Japanese wrestling company. And he's actually Korean. So it's kind of an interesting cultural analysis there. But anyway, um, now I'm going down the rabbit hole, which is probably interesting for our listeners. If they're listening, they're interested. The point is uh, in wrestling, Japan could beat anyone. Um, The, the, the Japanese uh, wrestlers at the end of the day, the, uh, the Gaijin wrestlers, right? The, the big names from America would come in beat everyone up, win a bunch of matches, and then would lose to the big, you know, to, yeah. to the hero of the of the whatever promotion they were in, in the big climactic battle. And this is not too different from American pro wrestling, right? Like, y- you see this play out, right? Or Well, I mean, it is the idea where, you know, you there, there are athletes performing athletic feats, but it is a predetermined storyline. Yes. Um, Japanese wrestling tends to have more of a veneer of sport to it. So it's treated with more at like as more of an athletic endeavor and, uh, generally people hit really hard. (laughs) Oh, wow. So that's like, it is more, it is more like a combat sport. And there's some promotions that mix unpredetermined that historically had mixed unpredetermined like MMA fights with predetermined wrestling yeah. Bouts, right. But the, but, but the, the, one of the reasons it got so popular in Japan, especially in like the sixties was because it was one of the few places where you could pay money, you know, go have a good time and see Japan win. Right. There was the, the sense of Japan had lost was so endemic to, to kind of mm-hmm. pop culture, uh, in the post-war years. Uh, you can go see the symbols of American power get brought low by the the might of uh of, of the the virile 
Japanese man. Yeah. Plus also women's wrestling in Japan rules, uh, which is its own <laughs> parallel track of development. Uh, yeah. So that's a receipt. That's kind of the early. That's kind of the main line on it. I'm sure someone who does more scholarly analysis might have more specific yeah. things to say, but that's it's a similar expression of like, how do we, how, how does this, like, how, how do we deal with this defeat? Like, yeah, I mean, both Godzilla and wrestling then seem like they're parts of the same conversation. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, in that, like, works that don't ignore history <laughs> are, right. like, in conversation with history, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the, um, but, uh, yeah, like, I think that there's uh, fun to be had looking at, at things from different perspectives and seeing what they can say about themselves, their genre, you know, what have you in mm -hmm. that perspective, whatever perspective that happens to be. Yeah. Like for instance, I, uh, watching, uh, seventies detective show. Speaking of looking at historical things from different perspectives, I got a gift recently of a book on David Chase. Oh yeah. It's a series of scholarly essays about David Chase and various shows of his. Probably what prompted this was the success of the Sopranos. Yeah. Um, and most of the essays are about the Sopranos, but there's stuff in, in there about the Rockford Files, which is why I was interested in this book. Uh, I haven't gone through all of them yet, but the, uh, the first one that I read that specifically was talking about the Rockford Files was talking about how, um, so David Chase, you know, uh, in the modern TV landscape, he's known for the Sopranos, obviously. And then he also, uh, was, um, he did not create, but he was a big, force behind northern exposure oh okay and i guess that is also considered like a key television show i did not know that but apparently according to I... these essays it goes like sopranos is at the top then northern exposure and <laughs> then like everything else david chase has ever done it's oh, that's interesting uh, so i i mean i remembered northern exposure i remember it being uh big when it came out like not mm -hmm. popularly big but but Critically big? Yeah, I think it was like a, a, a critically uh, uh, appreciated show. I yeah. like, I remember it being on TV when I was a kid. I've never seen an episode, and I did not know it was a it was a big deal. But apparently, yeah. apparently it was. Yeah, I'm I'm now I'm curious to see if I would go back and watch it because I I never I've never had the urge to do it. Not like say the Rockford Files, <laughs> which <laughs> right. clearly. I had the urge to go back and watch several times. Right. Um, I guess I could go uh, get the book and see if I'm misremembering this right. Um, misremembering this right. If I am <laughs> misremembering this or not. So I feel like whatever his role was, maybe he came at the end of the show and some, or something important there. Anyway, the, the point is, this is not a point about Northern Exposure. It's a point about the Rockford Files, which is that in the shows that, that Chase has been involved with, the Rockford Files is uh, considered uh, lowbrow, while The Sopranos oh, is considered highbrow, right? Like, huh. Golden Age of Television yeah. starts with The Sopranos, and it's a, you know, critically acclaimed, and it has all these... Uh, 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 it, it's an elevated piece of television, right. right? In the landscape of TV. While the Rockford Files is like, oh yeah, that was a fun show, but it's like not considered 
in the annals of the great television shows, uh, which I, we would disagree with, of course. Yeah, I think uh, so, yeah. <laughs> but this essay was talking about how, um, so it was written, kind of, I think it was at the end of the, most of these are from the uh, early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. And, there's an, and so there's this ongoing conversation and debate about television in particular, but like, especially broadcast TV, it's a democratic form, right? Like it's very right. easily accessible um, to lots of people. Uh, and so it is considered to be lowbrow and popular entertainment, except uh. when it's not, when all, when for whatever reason a, a show is like, is, is critically acclaimed and yeah. uh, rise above the, the pack for whatever reason. You know, okay. And so people assign lower value to quote popular entertainment because it's widely accessible. Right. And then that also means that that's the stuff that has the most impact on our culture. Yes. So, because <laughs> more people see it and absorb it. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's, there's kind of pushback against that conception of, of assigning value based on whether it's popular or not, which I'm sure everyone listening has had some form of this debate about things that get popular and whether right. they're better or worse and whatever. It's, it, you know, it's that thing that like the, the world will, will probably agree when it comes to English authors. Uh, Charles Dickens is like one of the best, but also was like one of the most popular in his, right. you know, like, yeah, um, literally getting paid by the word pumping out, <laughs> you know, as much as he could. I bet you, I bet you that one, well, there's probably a couple things at work here that, that, uh, maybe belong more on a show about psychoanalyzing uh, story <laughs> creators, but I bet you like one of the things that's happening is sort of a, a, a synchronicity if it because sopranos was also popular right like right like everyone knows about it you when you say sopranos you think of the television show and not about the opera singers right that literally are sopranos uh so it's it, it fits that like popular critical acclaim uh it was hbo right so yeah. it also had like that uh had a nice rarity to it. Like not everyone had access to it. And and one of the things about it that people that kind of start, and I feel like this, this feels like it's just normal now, but right. This is a change that happened, which was where one of the reasons it, it was so critically acclaimed was because it, it took things that people generally associated with movies and put it into TV. Yeah. Both I think cinematographically, but also Storyline wise, how characters are, you know, are, are handled themes and arcs and motifs and like all that stuff that now is just how TV is because TV has changed to be like the Sopranos. (laughs) Yeah. And also now, and this is something that I think might have been in the essay or I might just osmos from something else, but there's like a, a, a crossing of the trend line where TV, TV became more like movies while movies uh, in having these big serial franchises are now more yeah. like TV, <laughs> where, <Yeah. laughs> right? Where you have the familiar character that you get to see over and over, and sure they change. You know, there's a plot and stuff happens, yeah, and they may change incrementally as a response to that, but it's not. Uh, uh, but we always have the sense of oh, we'll we'll be back next time. I think also there's a a thing happening with um uh this is I'm going to talk out of my ass here. Dear listeners, this is what you signed up for. Yeah. I think there's that Sopranos is probably more a more immediate influence on the current uh, creators in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I don't think that that's a controversial thing for me to say, because it is 
temporally more <laughs> more uh, uh, close to it. But also, like, I can see a lot of people drawing from that and not going back to the Rockford Files and drawing from the Rockford Files. And I think that influences how we critically talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like a recency bias kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I think, you know, just in, in the fact that it has, you know, like you could talk about music and say, oh, this band is uh, better than that band. But like if that band that you're talking about happens to be the Beatles and has influenced like so many around you, right. uh, then it's hard to have that argument without falling prey to that. Like I have a lot of bands that I enjoy more than the Beatles. Uh, and I'm just putting that out there. That's, <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> but I think that like, that's true of everyone, but also it's yeah. a hard thing for people to say, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because, uh, I mean, physically it's, it's easy to say, like I could, but at what point do you mount a spirited defense of like, no, the Beatles are bad actually versus like, right. they're not my favorite band, but I, acknowledge their influence on music and culture yeah yeah and to be clear i don't think the beatles are bad actually no but like <laughs> no. like you there are many other bands i would rather listen to in general yes and uh i think that's the uh yeah i think that's that's basically what i'm getting at there is it like okay it's fine you can have your sopranos beatles mm -hmm. uh but uh i'm gonna stick with my rockford ronnie james dio i knew you were gonna say dio yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so I feel like this is what I was trying to get at when I originally brought this up, uh, mm -hmm. uh, with the reframing question though, um, which is that one of the interesting things from this essay, the, so the essay was kind of talking about reconsidering the Rockford files, right. By not just being like, oh yeah, it was a popular show that David just right. happened to work on. Um, but talking, but it was talking about how one of the things that really stands out watching the show now is how it um how it so not honestly but how it so like naturally occupies la and how la is such oh, like yeah, the yeah. la of the time is such a part of the fabric of the show and that's a function of it being uh in in that production system where your choice was shoot on the back lot that everyone else shot on or right. go out and shoot on the streets. Um, and so they, and they chose to shoot on the streets because a, then they didn't have to schedule around sharing the back lot and, I, and, <laughs> and, and they got to drive the cars and they got to you know do things the way they want to do them. Um, and I think an aspect is because the landscape is part of the character in a lot of ways yeah. with Jim Rockford, but how that, that kind of thing, uh, uh, the, you know, quote unquote, uh, popular entertainment of a time can capture a time in a way that it wasn't mm -hmm. intent. No one set out with the Rockford files to be like, we're going to create a historical document of how LA was in the mid to late seventies. Right. That's just a byproduct of how they did it. But watching yeah. it now, like I have this experience where I watch it and I'm just like, wow, you just don't see buildings like that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, it's not like I know LA at all as, as, as our listeners know, I'm sure you can go to Rockford files, filming locations.blogspot.com to find out more <laughs> than you ever wanted to know about all of the physical locations that the show was filmed at. Um, but uh, uh, even just, you know, I've, I've, I spent a decent amount of time in San Francisco because my folks live out there now. And the nature of even on the West Coast where stuff lasts for a long time and, you know, because mm -hmm. it doesn't get all all 
ground out by bad weather and stuff like that. So stuff, stuff lasts. But even the stuff that lasts gets torn down and built over. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so much stuff in Rockford Files just watching them drive around where it's like, oh, yeah, they, like gas stations just don't look like that anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, built like hotels just don't look like that anymore. Even if the physical shell is still there, everything else about it is, is different. And it's so... Uh, uh, just naturally expresses that that sense of place um, without even trying, and that like makes it a really that's part of what makes it compelling for me as right. someone who doesn't didn't live through all that. It's a window into that past, but it's also like here's actually kind of an interesting and possibly important cultural artifact. Yeah, and I mean, like I'm I'm gonna bring up Dickens again because uh, he predates this medium uh, and. Uh, he does the same thing for London mm. uh, of his time. Like that was the, that was like one of the things that you could, uh, you know, you can, I mean, you could take tours of Dickens, London and all that, but like you could find the places that he was talking about and the way he described it. And said, and it just occurred to me, uh, cause I mean, you and I, uh, are involved in a medium where this isn't an easy thing to do, right? Like we mm. couldn't, we'd have to set out to do it. Right. We can't mm. accidentally do it like the Rockford Files did. Uh, I shouldn't say accidentally, because mm-hmm. it probably is one of those serendipitous things where uh, as the show goes on, it leans into it. Right. Like, mm. uh, I mean, obviously, because the, the um, first of the 90s films is I still love L.A. Right. Like, right. Yeah. It's 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 about. Uh, wildfires and riots and, <laughs> and, and, you know, what, what have you. But, uh, yeah, I would, like, it would be very, very difficult to do that with a tabletop medium because you, you don't rely that visually. I feel like games do more, what they capture isn't geography necessarily, I mean, in general, unless you're really setting out to do it, um, in some way. Well, I, yeah, go on. I'll footnote that. <laughs> But they capture like a psychogeography, right? Yeah. Like whatever the mindset that you're in when you make it and whatever is going on in the world around you when it comes out, those are a bundle of, of, of experiences that do end up making games feel of a time and place mm-hmm. as you go through time, like playing, yeah, you know, yeah. Play, playing early 2000s Forge games that has a right. feel to those games have a feel to them. In, in a large part, because many of them are not a specific setting. They ask you to, you know, do some kind of setting creation or whatever, but they're about a theme or they're about an experience that t- very tightly constrains you into that thing, and et cetera, et cetera. And that is a noticeably different set of experiences across multiple games than like Apocalypse World, through, you know, like uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games post-Apocalypse yeah. World or uh, uh, World of Darkness mid-90s games. Uh, the, I think that's a great segue into my footnote because uh, now that I think about it, there are games like there's imaginary space that games fill. Mm-hmm. Like there are people out there that will be able to tell you about all of the the world of like Dragonlance, for example, the lore, if you will. Yeah, the lore, and but could also say, and if you take a left here and you walk for three days, this is the town you come to, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the same way that people can do that with Tolkien, mm-hmm. uh, where. Uh, there's an an imaginary world made real by uh, the presence of maps and and whatnot. Uh, And that's interesting. And also like the world of darkness in the nineties 
did make attempts at um, being, you know, Chicago by night. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, the uh, like picking a a a city where it might be neat to envision vampires and uh, place their vampires there. Um, I don't like, and I make no. I, I'm I bounced off of World of Darkness, so I, like I can't. I don't know like how well they did. They're of varying success. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, Chicago, none of them ever Chicago did. Chicago by night, in particular, is not the not the lower is in the the lower half, but not the lowest end. I would say. Uh, none of them did Akron by night <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Green Bay by night or any of the other places where I lived. So, uh, well, there's probably in New York by night, wasn't there? Maybe not. I, th- I think so. But I'm I not. So. I think it was I'm, one of the later ones. I don't know. I, I try so hard not to be the person that lived in New York for five years and tell people I'm from New York. <laughs> <laughs> like, I literally lived in New York for five years. That's the end of that story. Mm-hmm. Like that story doesn't go any further. It's funny because I I associate you with New York because that's because you were living there when I met you. Yeah. Oh, I have, and you've probably heard this story, but I do have a I lived in New York for five years story that I will tell in our upcoming uh, episode because uh, it it's uh, it's the, relevant. Yeah, and there are like there's probably like a half a dozen personal stories that are relevant. Uh, for this upcoming episode, mm. it's just the way it all mixed together. And that is the one that I'm comfortable telling. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I think I see where you're going with this. All right. Cause there's a few others where I'm like, yeah, uh, I've been in a relationship like that. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't talk about that on yeah. the air. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, then that's a good time for us to go ahead and move on to our actual discussion. Oh, uh, excellent. Yes. Unless you have anything else uh, you want to throw out. Uh, uh, I don't right know. Now. Is it? I mean, I mean, normally we do. Normally, in the other two times we've done one, <laughs> how many times have we done the plus expenses? Uh, I think this is like the fourth one. Oh wow! Yeah, Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel so old. <laughs> uh, do we want to just quick talk about what we've been watching or consuming recently? That's of <laughs> okay. interest. I really, I actually don't have anything to add to. I, I've been watching Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't really have anything in particular. I need to, that I need to call out. Um, yeah. All right. I will. Maybe we'll talk about this next time. But I broke into a broke into. I finally unpackaged. Um, I have this like uh, set of uh, like martial arts movies, like B movie oh. martial arts. So yeah. Uh, it's one of those companies, I think it's Mill Creek, which actually is the one that yeah. puts out the Rockford Files, which is kind of weird, but where they just package up all these, like, all these low-hanging fruit, bad, old movies into collections and sell them for, like, $15 for 30 kung fu movies or whatever. Yeah. I have one of those, but it's around Bruce Lee, so, like, there's four or five actual Bruce Lee movies, and then there's a couple Bruce Lee movies, L.I., the guy who would be in movies kind oh. of... As if he was Bruce Lee. Right. <laughs> but he's a different Bruce Lee. And then a bunch of stuff. And then there's some Brandon Lee, some Brandon Lee movies, including Laser Mission. Yes! Oh my god. All right. So this is worth it for that yes. alone. Uh, and then a bunch of other So I've started just watching those kind of, you know, yeah. uh, in the background. Cause, uh, and, and so far I have nothing, I have nothing interesting to report. Uh, Chinese Hercules, uh, did not did, did not live up to the title. I'll say okay. that. <laughs> okay. But maybe next time we talk, I'll have one or two uh, uh, things to, to say about bad 
kung fu movies. <laughs> I, I, I held my finger above the order button for a meek or a meek, a mill Creek, uh, collection earlier this week. Uh, hmm. they have, um, the first 11 Gamera films. Hmm. Uh, and I had never seen a Gamera film and I was like, I can own all but one of them <laughs> with just the push of the button. Uh, but I, but then you looked at your budget. Yes. <laughs> well, that was the thing. Like I was like, it's, I mean, like it was 30 bucks, which is a, like a deal. That's like less than $3 a film, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, uh, you know, if I want to watch a Gamera film, I'll probably rent it from an online streaming thing for roughly that same cost. Right. Yeah. So why not? But the thing that stopped me was just, uh, well, the thing that stopped me is my local public library had a copy and oh, well, I don't know when I'll get it because it's one and there's several of us waiting for it. But, Ooh. um, Someday. but, yeah, I was like, Mill Creek, I like them. They do my Rockford Files. <laughs> well, speaking of the Rockford Files, yes. we'll uh, go ahead and get to the main show. Somebody should talk about the Rockford Files. <laughs> 